You are listening to Hope Fellowship Church of Jaffrey, New Hampshire. If you would like to check out more resources or to donate to this ministry, please visit hfcnh.org. to be in the house of the Lord today, and you're welcome here. Every one of you are welcome, and uh, I'm, I'm praying that God will speak through the text this morning. Uh, there's some verses today that are very familiar, uh, as we're going to be looking at the person of David. We're going to be starting our, really starting, <laughs> in my mind, uh, the King David series. We've been doing a lot of lead up and build up, but today we finally get to David, <laughs> okay? Uh, but we've been in talking through all the lead up and build up. King Saul, we looked at Samuel, even looked at Judges and Ruth. How everyone's pointing to this figure, this figure who's about to step onto the scene today. So this is 1 Samuel 16. We're looking at David's anointing today. And I, I trust this is going to be a challenging message for you as it's been for me. We're just looking today at, at one chapter. Uh, 1 Samuel 16. So I'm, I'm going to actually read the whole chapter. I think we have time for that today. I think it's pertinent. It's a, it's a powerful passage to examine. And I'm going to try to tease out some things for us today as we go through it. But I, I just want to try to read through it. It's difficult for us preachers to just, re- <laughs> just read through the text without preaching it as we go. So I'm going to try, try to just read it out for us. We'll pray uh, and then we'll dive in, Okay. 1 Samuel 16, verse 1, the Lord said to Samuel, how long will you grieve over Saul since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go, and I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. And Samuel said, how can I go if Saul hears it? He will kill me. The Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. And invite Jesse to sacrifice and I will show you what you shall do. And you shall anoint for me him whom I declare to you. Samuel did what the Lord commanded. Again, such a contrary, I I can't preach it, right? such Such a contrary statement from last chapter where Saul did not do anything close to what the Lord commanded. Here, just a simple Samuel did what the Lord commanded. Don't miss that. And, and he came to Bethlehem. Sound familiar? The elders of the city came to meet him, trembling, said, do you come peaceably? And he said, yes, peaceably. I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves. Come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons, invited them to the sacrifice. Verse 6. When they came, he looked on Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. Eliab, the oldest, the tallest. (laughs) But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. And Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. Verse 9, and Jesse 
made Shema pass in front of him, and he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen these. Then Samuel said to Jesse, are are all your sons here? And he said, yeah, there there remains yet the youngest, but behold, he is keeping the sheep. Samuel said to Jesse, send him and get him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. And he sent and brought him in. Behold, he was ruddy or reddish, maybe of hair or appearance or vibrant, he could even say, ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, arise, anoint him, for this is he. Verse 13, and Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the spirit of the Lord rushed upon David. And from that day forward, Samuel rose and went to Ramah. You'll notice a big transition here, a switch, a massive pivotal point in the entire book. Verse 14, and now the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and a harmful spirit from the Lord tormented him. And Saul's servant said to him, behold, now a harmful spirit from God is tormenting you. Let our Lord now command your servants who are before you to seek out a man who is skillful in playing the lyre or the harp. And when the harmful spirit from God is among you, he will play it, and you will be well. So Saul and his servants, uh, so Saul said to his servants, provide for me a man who can play well and bring him to me. And who do you think that man's going to (laughs) be? Verse 18, one of the young men answered, well, behold, I have seen the son of Jesse, the Bethlehemite, who is skillful in playing. He's a man of valor. He's a man of war, prudent in speech. He's a man of good presence or good character. And the Lord is with him. Key phrase, the Lord is with him. Verse 19, therefore Saul sent messengers to Jesse and said, send me David, your son, who is with the sheep. Jesse took a donkey laden with bread and a skin of wine and a young goat and sent them by David, his son, to Saul. David came to Saul and entered his service. Saul loved him greatly. He became his armor bearer, almost like a chief assistant. And Saul sent to Jesse saying, let David remain in my service for he has found favor in my sight. And whenever the harmful spirit from the Lord of, from God was upon Saul, David took the lyre, he played it with his hand. So Saul was refreshed and was well and the harmful spirit departed from him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We, we stand in submission to it and to you, knowing, God, that you have given us your word, your truth, to teach us many things, to change us into your likeness and your image, to transform us by its power through the Spirit of God. And Father, I pray today, that today would not just be another day, but it would be a time when we draw closer to you, we grow in our understanding and in our knowledge, but we have a keen awareness for the reality of your existence, the truth of your life and resurrection, 
and the meaning of your sacrifice for us on the cross. And God, that that gospel would not fall on deaf ears today, but that, that that word would impact us. Lord, would pierce us through like the sword that pierced our sides, the truth would divide asunder into our very hearts. Father, I pray for everyone here, everyone listening to this, that they would be impacted and changed by your word, that your spirit would rush upon us and fill us and empower us for your service, that we'd be used for your glory, equipped in your spirit to proclaim the gospel, to shine the light and the truth here in this place and for many, many years to come until you one day return. We pray in that manner, in that like, Lord, knowing that you hear our prayers, you listen to our voice, and Lord, you, more importantly, discern the thoughts and the intentions of our hearts. May our hearts be pure before you today. May we desire what you desire. May our will be your will. In Jesus' name, amen. 1 Samuel 16, David's anointing. David now steps into the forefront of this story, as I've said. He's been featured up until this point as the coming figure that's in the for it's being foreshadowed. It's being figured he's coming, we know, and those of us who grew up in church, we know the stories, we know he's coming. But we've tried to suspend that as we've been reading up until this point, as the text has been pointing us to this character of David that is coming. Someone better, some figure, some kind of king is going to bring unity to the dispersed tribes, is going to defeat the enemies, is going to uh, conquer and, and gain victory, and at the same time will be a kind of king that will humbly submit himself to the king of kings. We find out that Saul seemed to be that character and yet falls greatly short. Last chapter, we saw how David is contrasted here because Saul is the person whom the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from due to his great rebellion and rejection. And I I just think it's important for us to think about uh, the magnitude of this person of David. Right before we jump into here of, of David and some of the intro here, I guess David is I think I mentioned it before, but it struck me fascinating as I was studying about David, never preached through the life of David, often because you look at it and it is a monumental life. One commentator says, outside of Jesus of Nazareth, David's story is the longest and fullest account of an individual life in the Bible. We hear more individual stories, more content about David that cover a broader span of life than any other figure in the Bible. He's a daunting character, quite a pivotal person to find here. Of what it is about, yes, his early life, his middle life, the time when he's running from Saul, his kingdom, and when it's strong, and then when he falls and fails in many ways, yet God supports him, though he experiences the consequences of his sin late in life. And so we find that this story is such a, it's a, he's a type of Christ pointing us to Jesus, yet at the same time we can find that his life and the character and the span of his life, we find ourselves connecting with it at a deeper level as well. And I think that's something that you'll see today and as we go. 
And so we begin with this David character. He steps onto the scene literally out of obscurity. He's serving in the field. Saul disobeys and essentially rebels against the rule of God and he desires to be his own king, which we looked at last week was a reflection of the very beginning in Genesis. Where in Genesis you have the fall of man where we desire to be our kings demanding what's right and wrong. We eat of the knowledge of good and evil and and we fall and we falter in this like manner. God comes into the garden and questions, where are you? You know, where are you hiding? And same thing, Samuel enters with Saul and says, what, what's the sound of sheep that I hear? And we, we see a little bit of a mirror image there in some of the storylines. God, through his judgment now upon Saul, has torn the kingdom from him. And he says he's going to be giving that kingdom to a man after his own heart. And we wonder what that looks like. What does that mean? And then if you remember a few weeks ago, we looked at Psalm, uh, it's not Psalm, 1 Samuel chapter 2 and Hannah's prayer. Remember David's prelude as we called it, Hannah's prayer, how I likened that to kind of this, this great thesis statement for the books of 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel. And it ends with words like this that are familiar to what we've just read in 1 Samuel, but also to the storyline that is coming. And I wanted to just remind us of that before we jump in. 1 Samuel 2, verse 7, says, The Lord makes poor and he makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. Verse 9 says, He will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked, Saul, the wicked shall be cut off in darkness. For not by might shall man prevail. This is Hannah's words before any of these things have happened with Saul and David. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken into pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. That literally happened in Dagon and at Ebenezer there. And the Lord will judge the ends of the earth. And then here's this key statement that points us to David, which ultimately points us to Jesus. Verse 10, 1 Samuel 2. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Exalt the horn of his anointed. So that's what we see here back in 1 Samuel 16, 1 and 2. We see this anointing from a horn of oil. And that horn being likened to almost this aspect risen of this high point of a weapon of strength and, uh, and power. He will exalt one to rule in that way. And so we see this, that... At the beginning, we see, as I kind of mentioned it already in in verses 2 through 7, what I mentioned is that Samuel obeys. It begins with this clear statement of Samuel getting the word of God and simply obeying the command of God. Seems like a mundane thing. Seems like a normal, everyday task you read about in the Bible. Of course, you receive the word of God, you're supposed to do it. But again, in direct contrast to the last couple chapters we've been reading. Saul's received instructions from God and from Samuel and, done, and not done them. And so what we see is one humbly submitted to God. Samuel is doing the word of God and David is exalted here. Samuel follows the word of God precisely. God tells him what to do, but he doesn't reveal the ending. As you'll notice, Samuel even questions and is in conversation with God. If I do this, he says, Saul's going to kill me. 
take a sacrifice, go to Jesse, make the sacrifice. When you get there and do what I've told you to do, I'll tell you what to do from there. I just find a greater practical aspect here. Is that not how so often our relationship is with the Lord? (laughs) Does he reveal everything for you to do from now till 10 years from now? Half the time, we barely know what to do tomorrow. But often he reveals just enough for us to handle, just enough for our faith to be strengthened for us to take another step. And as we do, and as we obey, and as we follow his word, and as we, the word says, keeping, as we keep in step with the spirit, he will lead you and he will guide you. He will reveal for you what you need to do in whatever situation that might be. And many of you are nodding your head as I speak. You know what that is like in your life and life experiences to have the word of God direct you and direct your paths. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding and he will direct your paths, right? This aspect of leading and guiding that God and his spirit gives, we see Samuel in the simple way, practically following the Lord. Samuel then is obeying, but we find Samuel observing. What do we see him observing? He observes great strength. Verse six, verse six, if you're following along, or you have your Bible with me or on your app or whatever, verse six, he, you'll see, he sees somebody. And who does he see? He sees Eliab. Verse six and seven here. He comes and he, and he looked and, and Eliab is, is, is most likely the oldest, the strongest, the elder brother, right? How many of you are the oldest here in your family? Raise your hand. How many of you are the oldest? Great. You're rejected. How many of you are the youngest like me, right? Yay, we're the ones that, okay, I had to do that. Some of you are already like, ah, you, dirty, right? Uh, David's the youngest in his family, And the Eliab, the oldest, the ones who often hear, especially in these situations, we've already seen Saul, strong, tall, right? Tall Saul, he looks like a king. That guy's the king. Eliab certainly looked like a king. I don't know. The Bible doesn't share much about Eliab beyond this. But he wasn't God's anointed. We don't know if he was what is up with him or any of the other brothers, except for the fact that this is a theme we don't have time to get into too much today. Throughout the entire scripture, God is constantly choosing the underdog, the one who is the unfavored one, the youngest, the littlest, the smallest. He so often chooses not the one who has the birthright, in a sense, the oldest, the firstborn, but constantly undergirds that by choosing the one who comes after, the forgotten, in this sense. I mean, this is just, you can trace that theme. We did that even in the story of the Bible series we did. We looked at how that pops up so many different places. Here again, David, we see that. And so what I find is, is it's literally uh, in verse 6. I just love the statement. And he, he seems so confident, right? Like, when he, you'll find the king there. He doesn't tell Samuel who it is, verse 6. And when they came, he, took on, he looked on Eliab. That dude, look at this young strapping young boy, right? Uh, this guy's a, a beast, man. This guy, surely this guy's the Lord's anointed, right? Surely this. God says, no, no, no. No, no, that, that, that's, that's not who I've chosen. And surely it's the next guy, right? I mean, surely it's this. Surely it's that. Surely. No, no, no. None of you guys. Where, where's the other one, right? This gets into this deeper concept really where we find, what I've already alluded to, is a greater question of values. A question of values. Where God is showing us through this example, he's giving us an insight or a lens to see what it is that God really values. 
and how our lens that we see life through so often does not match what God values. We see the outward appearance, and often we overemphasize what we see, right, versus peeling back the curtain and seeing truly what it is that God sees and what God truly values. We often, in culture, in life, in business, in church, I don't know what, you, you name it, we, though, yes, because we are human, I cannot pierce down here from this pulpit and see your heart, okay? I, I can't see what's in there. I don't know. God knows. He sees what I do not see. So we have to constantly remind ourselves how we are not to be in the position of constantly judging outward appearances, although that is a part of human life. We do judge outward appearance. You have to do that in a variety of situations, driving down the road. You judge the appearance of a car and how fast they're going, whether they're turning and whether you have to slow down in order to let someone yield and all these things. You're judging life on a basis because you see what you see. But the Bible reminds us in verse uh, 7, do not look on his appearance or the height of his stature or the strength of his arms or, 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 or the, the size of his bank account. Or, or you could put in whatever list that we often think is the most important thing about someone. He says, because I rejected him. For the Lord sees. Not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance. But God looks on the heart. You see, God can see the heart. That is a both welcoming and comforting thing and also a very frightful thing. For he sees the thoughts, as the word says, the word actually discerns the thoughts and intentions of your heart. You can fool everyone else in this room. You cannot fool God. Jeremiah 17.10, I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind. To give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. Proverbs 21.2, every way of man is right in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the heart. Psalm 19.14, let the words of my mouth, meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. Hebrews 4.12, as I've already said, the word of God is living and active, it's sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of the soul and spirit of the joints and marrow discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. Question of values is presented here. What is that our heart values? Where is our heart? What is it that we love, our desires and thoughts and intentions? Because Matthew 6, 21, in the words of Jesus, for where your treasure is, (laughs) there will your heart be also. For if we value only what man values, If we only value, as the scripture says, in other places, the might of war horses and chariots, and we have poorly misplaced our values, as has been demonstrated in the scripture, especially in the Old Testament, God does not need war horses and chariots to win his battles. (laughs) He doesn't even need you. The Ark of the Covenant in the temple of Dagon took care of itself, right? This is the God we serve, greatly powerful. Man's accomplishments, man's value systems, our worldview, you could say, is not God's systems of measurement. And when we look only on the outward appearance, 
we do not see what God sees. And therefore, I think it is pertinent to pray often, Lord, help me see what you see. Help me to be able to have the vision to see what is truly the thing that you value in this situation. The spiritual life, the inner form of life, the forming and the shaping of the inward transformed heart that is so hard to put a metric to, to put a number to. Well, you have this many people that attend a church service. Great. Well, how many people of those have their heart being transformed? Nobody can put a number to that. God sees these things. God knows these things. So whether you have a big full church service or a small sparsely attended church service, you don't know the value that God places on that. I guess some way I'm speaking to myself and friends of mine in pastoral ministry, it's not about those things, is it not, right? Not about the size of buildings, the size of your church, but about often the content and the maturity and the character of the heart that's there church life or, or business or you, you put really any situation there, I think you can apply these principles. The outward aspects of success and greatness. But what about the changed heart and a heart wholly given over to God? What he can do with one changed heart, one person fully submitted to him, the, what, the, the, the impact that God can do from that one thing, from that one heart, from that one person. We cannot overvalue the many and neglect the one, the simple, the 99 versus the one. Life in the kingdom of God, this is a storyline that I think has been coming up over the last several months, unintentionally probably. The idea that blessed are you, the misfits, the people who are overlooked, those who don't find their place in the world sometimes, or for those of us who feel out of place, the misunderstood, the misplaced, the mistreated. For you have the Lord's spirit within you. You've been anointed by God and very, in his very presence you are. You are in the kingdom. Therefore, you're blessed. You're greatly favored by God. You have much to sing about, much to praise him for. Favored because you find yourself today receiving the grace of God as you live in the kingdom of God under the rule of King Jesus as his spirit anoints you and his everlasting hope of eternal life and transforming grace is in your life working each and every moment. These are reasons to sing. (laughs) These are reasons to recognize this is why we find ourselves blessed and happy people of God in his kingdom. And so we recognize how God chooses and what God values and God sees the outward, not the inside. And so we look verses 8 through 11, move on through this idea, and you can almost see, can you, again, feel the tension while you're reading a little bit? Again, it's just me. I, we, you know this now, right? But I find some weird things. It seems like it's almost awkward, right? It's a little tense. Every guy is going in front of, not you, not you, not you. Next, man, you got any sons worthy of anything around here? Get next, you know. And then what I find incredibly awkward. Do you have any other sons? Well, yeah, we got one more in the field. Where's he at? I don't know. He's way over there. What, are you sure you want to wait around? He's like, yes. No one is sitting down till David gets here. So they all have to like awkwardly, I just picture they're all just kind of awkwardly standing there like, uh, all right, and everyone's like, and then they go away to find David, and I just wonder, does Samuel make small talk with them, or is everyone in this really tense moment of like, we're not the ones, and I find it very strange. They're all there waiting, right? 
They're all there waiting and just trying to figure out who is this person? Who is this youngest? If I recall, I don't even think they give his name yet. And so he's, he's at this point. Well, yeah, there remains the youngest. The word there could even be the smallest. But behold, he's keeping the sheep. He's keeping the sheep. Again, do you remember what we find Saul doing when we first meet him? Do you, were you here last week? What was Saul doing when we first meet Saul? He's tall, all these things. And what's he doing? He, he's, he's, he's wandering around looking for donkeys that he cannot find. He's lost and looking for donkeys. And there's a whole lot of statements we can go into there, right? But uh, that, that aspect. Now, our first introduction to David is his faithfulness. And his willingness to serve in obscurity and do what his father has told him to do. He's obedient. Even though he knows the great and mighty Samuel is in the presence. Earlier, people were terrified at Samuel's presence. Did you see that? He enters Bethlehem and everyone's like, are we going to die? <laughs> and they're, they're all like, you literally have God's voice talking to you. When Samuel comes around, he ain't messing around. And so Samuel comes to this family and David knows what's going on, I'm sure. But no, he's out taking care of the sheep. Everyone else gets to go to the party. And yet he's the only one invited. <laughs> David's profile, Old Myth, if you were to have little David's profile, what is it? He's, he's ruddy, as I said, a strange term. Maybe we don't use it. Depending on your transition or your translation, you might have a different term. The word ruddy is also used to describe Esau, if you remember him being ruddy and reddish in hair. Um, but he has beautiful eyes. He's handsome. He's the youngest, the smallest. And it's interesting God just got done reprimanding the outward appearance, and yet it struck me this week that he then shares the outward appearance. Do you find that weird? I don't know. He, he says it's not about the outward appearance, but look, this guy has beautiful eyes and he is handsome. I don't think there's a sense that's like these are bad things, that you cannot have these things. The sense is, yet even in David's heart, his heart displayed outwardly, his eyes, his character, there was something different about him. There was an attractive quality to David, inwardly and outwardly. And God is pointing to us that these two things match. Not like Saul, which had those outward things but lacked the inward. So there's an attractive quality. And it's important, important here. Now, kind of this key part, the key moment, key transition, is found here in verses 13 through 14. We spend most of our time probably on these little sections right here. And the ending will kind of uh, fly through a little bit. But verse 16, you'll see verse 13 and 14, there is a whole host of things that comes up in this verse. There's a pivotal, transitional moment where the whole book, you could say, swings off of this, this verse. And we, it swings off of this verse, or these two verses, 13 and 14, because it swings off the movement of the Holy Spirit. Where the Holy Spirit of the Lord goes, there is great victory. Or when the Holy Spirit leaves, there is great despair. And terror. The Spirit of God is said here in verse 16, uh, sorry, verse 13, after he is anointed with oil, Samuel took the, the oil and anointed him, and the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David. And then you'll notice in verse 14, I already pointed out, the Spirit of the Lord leaves Saul. There's a movement here. Phrasing here, this kind of spirit, this rushing, the unique term rushing upon someone or something here, specifically is used uh, in, in, in nine or ten different locations, this word of the Spirit of the Lord rushed. And it's used primarily of three individuals. 
the three individuals are, the first one will probably strike you as surprising, uh, where the Lord says the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon Samson. Multiple times the Spirit of the Lord rushes upon Samson to the point where we even get the sense that Samson must be this extraordinary figure. God used him in ways that is unlike any of the other judges. Incredible. We do the Sunday school stories, Samson, all this stuff. Judges 14.6, Judges 14.19, the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him. He went down, struck down 30 men and all these extraordinary feats of strength. Saul himself is said to have the Spirit of the Lord rush upon him. The same Hebrew word rushes upon him and he prophesies in chapter 10. Chapter 11 it says as well, verse 6, the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him. And then... um, even uh, later on, it, it says it, that the, there's a harmful spirit that rushes upon da- uh, Saul, where da- Saul then tries to spear David with a, a javelin. But here we have David being anointed uh, externally, and yet internally being anointed by the rushing of the Spirit of the Lord upon his life. We, we've seen this, we've studied this here at Hope met past years. The Holy Spirit in the Old Testament seems to work in extraordinary and, and powerful ways, yet seems to often work in concentrated movements on people for specific, uh, special service to God. Spirit that rushes upon David. I, I, this word, the Spirit, is even the same word we see in the Old Testament for ruach. It's the wind We find that in Genesis, verses 1, 2, and 3, where the Spirit of the Lord, Spirit, the Ruach, the divine wind or breath of God, is hovering over the waters at the creation of the world. We find that Genesis, the Spirit of God, Numbers, Moses is said to have the Spirit of the Lord come, this Ruach, fill the elders and Moses himself. And Moses said, are you jealous for my sake? Would that all the Lord's people would be prophets that the Lord would put his spirit or his ruach upon them. We see in Joel too, then this prophecy being further identified for a coming age. Joel 2, the prophecy of the spirit. It says, it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons, your daughters, they shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions. This sense of the spirit of God will be upon the common people. Not just the elders or the leaders or the kings, but that the common folk, the young men, the, the, the women, the, 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 the old, the, they shall be the ones having the Spirit of God poured out on them. That, that's a, a prophecy, an extraordinary statement. Then, then you know the, the history of Acts chapter 2 and Pentecost, where the Spirit is filled on all those people, and then all nations there, tribes, languages, and tongues there, that are filled, and they go out, and, and then we see the birth of the church, and extraordinary explode from that place. And then today, we find that even the Spirit here is filling all of us, not just myself, not just the elders that lead the church, or the deacons. But even you, even me, have the Spirit of God. A.W. Tozer said the Spirit-filled life is not a special deluxe edition of Christianity. It's part and parcel of the total plan for God and his people. For you to live by the Spirit, to keep in step by the Spirit. Paul's instruction so often for every believer in Jesus Christ to be filled with the Spirit and walk in the Spirit. This isn't for some special group. This is for you. You believe in Jesus, walk in the Spirit. Be filled with the Spirit. And yet, we don't have a ton of time to get into it, but this concept that we find that even though the Spirit of God comes upon, I think maybe the more challenging thing for us to reconcile with, at least I was, 
I was just kind of torn up about this this week, trying to understand it. How is it that the next verse in verse 14, what does it say? In verse 14, it says that there was a harmful spirit from who? From God. A harmful spirit from the Lord tormented him, Saul. This is one of those things that I, oh boy, as a pastor, you get down the rabbit hole of now studying the problem of evil, the sovereignty of God debates around free will. Did, did Saul just, you know, get the short end of the stick here? Is God just, you know, dem- how can we reconcile these things? And I think sometimes what we've been trying to do, what the Old Testament will do for you, is to expand your view of God. We tend to have a very little, tiny, limited view of God. We like God when he is this, right? We like that Matthew 11, Jesus, come to me, all you who are weary and laboring, for I am gentle and lowly. Yes, he is. But we see God in the Old Testament, who's the same as the God in the New Testament, and we find there are times when he is holy, his glory is weighty. And he, in a sense, as it says in Isaiah, Isaiah 45, 7, I, the Lord, form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. In the KJV, that word calamity actually reads, I create evil. It's just the word for bad or disaster in uh, ra'az, the Hebrew word. He says, I am the Lord who does all these things. This is hard to read sometimes. I, the Lord, give and I take away. What about the flood? What about Egypt and the ten plagues? What about Pharaoh's heart? What about the death angel? What about the Ark of the Covenant when Dagon is there, right? And the Ark of the Covenant there and the power and the weight of God just dominating that? What about Job? Yes, God gives license to Satan here in this way and does not work evil in those manners but allows it. How do we, and I guess you could say through the theme of this sermon, how do we see what God sees, what he values and what he truly desires and the long-term plan of what God is doing in the world. We so often have a limited view of what we expect and want and need and think we need. It is God who is much greater and in his wisdom, he knows far more. And I believe that's important for us to keep in mind as we get through these things. Uh, Edersheim and others don't believe that this is a harmful demon from God but rather a harmful spirit in the sense almost to an an angel, a messenger of God sent to bring judgment upon Saul and have him pay for the consequences of his sinful and willful rebellion against God. There are consequences for our sin. And yet the Bible says in Hebrews that he disciplines those whom he loves. And I believe this harmful spirit, and as we see, God is patient with Saul. It shows his steadfast love. In fact, what do we see at the very end? We see David, who has the spirit of God, coming to Saul and taking the harmful spirit away. That God brings this tormentor to Saul and yet provides the very means of its escape and its balm and its peace. He provides that. I love that concept. And And then, again, this passage, like I said, these two verses bring up so many things. There's this aspect of the anointing here. What is that? What does that look like? This anointing of of God truly bringing his spirit to fill David for a special service and task. The oil doesn't have some special power over David, but it is that the Holy Spirit moved through this external pouring of the oil in conjunction with the spirit of God pouring himself 
or as the word says, rushing like a wind upon him, like a big mighty storm upon David's life. The outward, visible, obedient pouring of the oil, the anointing, visible communicating of the inward transformation and power and empowering of the rushing of the Spirit. We see this, Lars was talking about it earlier, with communion as we see an external act of of participation and obedience to God. We come in and we partake and yet there's a spiritual significance that happens there that I cannot fully describe. We come before this with reverence and fear, yet we come as it displays the very unity and the love of God that brings us together through his spirit. And so this this beautiful picture there, we can say with baptism in like manner, Jesus' baptism is no doubt a, a picture of this anointing where David had the oil poured on, Jesus enters the waters and the Holy Spirit rushes or falls like a dove. Do you remember this? And and then we see that power of God speak down. This is my beloved son, my favorite one. Son of God, listen to his voice for he will be your king. This is your king. This is your king. Jesus in that story there, we see the anointing of David pointing us to Jesus' baptism and so many other things of David foreshadow this as a type of Christ, the anointed one. For the anointed ones in the Old Testament, prophets, priests, and kings, the three offices that Jesus 100% fulfills, that he is not an anointed one, he is the anointed one. Right, Jesus Christ, the word Christ is Greek there, right? But the word means Messiah, and Messiah means anointed one. Did you get that? The, the aspect of the anointed Messiah is David here, but the Messiah, the final Messiah, Jesus Christ. He is yet to come. He is prophet. He is priest. He is king, the Messiah, the anointed one. So we see David coming into here, and, and yet he is, as it says, they look for David. Where is he? He's a man of war, yet he's a good presence. The Lord is with him. And yet, where is he? He's with the sheep. It says in verse 19, for he's with the sheep. He's serving. They bring him again back into the service. He's elevated into the service. And even Saul himself confirms the anointing of David and says, this man is favored. Blessed is he. Help him serve me. And Saul unknowingly, in a sense, knows that the Lord is with him. And so all of this, there are so many avenues uh, to pursue in this study and in this short chapter as it sets up so much of the book. I, but the, the thing that the Lord kept reminding me of in this chapter, and maybe it's because, yes, often I tend to see certain things that I've experienced or gone through in the passage that stick out to me and I hope to bring them to you. So this is kind of our final conclusion. I, I want to kind of bring to our heart and our mind before we come to the communion table that it, it's this aspect of this this aspect of anointing, this aspect of choosing, you could say, of David, almost seemingly out of nowhere. And it strikes me every time, but it's like, how and, and why, you know? You, and sometimes I think of that in my own life. How and why? Have I been chosen or I have been used or I have been called, right? You know, have you ever had, why am I doing what you, this job or whatever, right? How is it that you get here? And this, this last weekend was our homecoming at my high school and we were thinking and talking. I talked to a lot of my old teachers around the place, my old place, right? And I think about all the different people that sowed life into you. 
and prepared you for what you're doing today. And every one of you has a similar situation and story, both positive and negative, makes you are to be what you are today. But I thought specifically, last night in particular, but in other times leading up to this, and I don't know if I want to separate this in some ways, I hesitate to do it, but I, in some sense, I want to end by talking specifically to young men. Now, I don't, I don't want to say, no, I'm not, this isn't for young women or old men or older women. It's really for everyone. But I guess in my heart, in my mind, I'm thinking about where I was 20 years ago or so, and I'm thinking about different sermons that I heard from different pastors and different aspects in this passage in particular, and thinking about, in particular, the aspect of being called as a young man to serve the Lord. It's something that I think maybe I undervalue at times or don't think about until I stop and pause for a few seconds and consider, what is it that God did in my life to call me to preach, call me to pastor at a young age? What is it, the things that he formed me? And I wonder with David, what is it in David's life that he's just serving, he's obedient, he's doing, he's active, he's busy? And I wonder about you young men in particular. I'm not putting an age there where you can put yourself in there, whatever category you like. But do you sense in your heart at times a burden for God's word and for his people? Do you have at times this internal burden? I've studied and read different great men of the faith and they they described often an external calling whereby God places and pressure on them to call them to one direction, but that only confirms the internal calling they've already been experiencing. I can say for me that's kind of how it was. I didn't have this moment where the skies opened up and the Lord spoke to me or like a Damascus Road thing, but I, I can look back and see several points in my life where God allowed me, like Saul, to choose him and draw near to him or draw further away and, and, and go the other direction, you could say. And yet, I think it's so important, it's so pivotal for us to, to consider that our country and our nation, but specifically our churches, we need young men to be stepping up into leadership positions to be answering the call of God on their life, not to be neglecting that pressure, that, that still small voice, that internal burden that you may feel at times for, for his word to open it up and study it and to, to seek him early in the morning, to be different than every other young man around, but to be a man who desires something different for his life to open his word, to read it and study it, and to garner and to fervor and to grow in relationship with his God. But no, you don't step into service or leadership in some way. It's that tending of the sheep. It's the serving in obscurity. Like nobody even knows that Lord's pressuring you now. Nobody knows. But you know that God's speaking to you and pushing on you and saying, get into my word, get to know me, get to serve me, get to serve in the back and the behind the scenes and, and let me work in your life. And I can remember so many different times in my little small life of that I've lived this, this aspect of God just confirming an internal call and a hunger, almost like a magnetism for his word that you study it, you learn, you know, you serve, and ultimately you humble yourself before the God. And you know what happens? Is what happens is God sees your heart, right? 
you might not know the outward ex- things, right? And, and maybe others might look at you outward and be like, you? Like, you would be a preacher one day, a pastor, serve the Lord as an elder, or a deacon, or whatever it might be. And I'm not even ruling out the aspects of business and other things. Those are, you can serve God and minister Him no matter where you are. Don't get me wrong. But I'm just wondering this aspect and this important remembering of, of how God does call. He does call. And I think sometimes he calls at young ages as it was for me. And maybe he's calling you today. And when he calls you, he will equip you. Right? He will equip you. And he will fill you with his spirit. And he will guide you in the way you ought to go. And he will lead you in the direction. All you have to do <laughs> is trust God and obey. As we began the service with, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. I I memorized this as a little kid, right? Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, submit, humble yourselves to Him, and He will make your path straight. In His way, in His righteousness. He's calling you, And he will equip you and he will lead you and guide you in his way and for his service. 